Even after Morrison left Bethlehem Hospital, he was definitely a champion of Dad's art. I think it's, it's really about the possibilities art has to change things. I think it's a basic human right to be creative in whatever form that is. Creativity can provide us with comfort in the harder times. It can be a tool to look into our own souls and seek understanding. Whether it's a way of making sense of events or changing times, Observing aspects of life and experience, capturing an emotion or idea, expressing something that is difficult to articulate with words. Art is the product of human emotion and experience. And this doesn't just go for the creator. Art has always provided its audiences a means of respite or interpretation for emotional events. Picasso said, the purpose of art is washing the dust of daily life off our souls. So how does art help us communicate with our inner experience and process life events? Today, we're going to look at how artists continue to use their work to heal, explore, or balance their minds. We'll look at modern day preoccupations, the amazing benefits of art in modern therapy, and artists who sought to resolve life's questions through their work. At the far end of the continuum on mental wellness, art has been offering human beings comfort for centuries. So what happens when art meets psychiatry? On a quiet August evening in the summer of 1843, two men took a walk through the grounds of a grand wooded estate in Kent. This peaceful scene between father and son led to a grisly murder. Robert Dad was a chemist a keen geologist and fossil hunter. He had brought his 26-year-old son Richard to the secluded county of his birth to allow him to recover from the strains of London and the growing mental imbalance that had been triggered by an artistic tour around the Middle East. In the moonlight, Robert had been bludgeoned, stabbed and dragged to a precipice by his son. This was where his body would be found the following morning. By that time, the murderer, Richard Dad one of Britain's most promising young artists, would be on a boat to Calais, on his mission to assassinate the Emperor of Austria. At this time, psychiatry was still a developing field. Richard Dad was apprehended on a stagecoach to Paris after attacking another passenger. After a period of detainment in France, he was returned to England the following year, classed as a criminal lunatic. A life of medical confinement followed, Firstly, in the hospital of St. Mary of Bethlehem, known as Bedlam, where he would meet the physician, Alexander Morrison. My name's Nick Tromans. I'm a lecturer at Christie's Education in Art History. I'm the author of Richard Dad, The Artist and the Asylum, uh, a book that was published in 2011, which sets out to tell the life story of this tragic figure of the 19th century who was a, a painter but also an asylum patient and has since become a kind of countercultural icon. Richard Dowd was born in Kent uh, in 1817. He was someone destined for great things as a painter, as an artist. He had a very, very successful early career as a very young man. He moved from his home in Kent to the centre of London, became a student 
at the Royal Academy schools and very quickly was singled out as being a likely leader of the future. Other artists, young artists, students gathered around him. His pictures started to be exhibited and more importantly, they started to sell. And he gathered around himself a group of friends who became known as the clique, which is essentially just meaning, you know, they were a gang. One of the things that followed from Dad's uh, great prominence as a young man is that uh, he, his name was bandied around by professionals, by older artists. And when a rather, at that time, famous Welsh lawyer was looking for a young artist to accompany him on a Middle Eastern tour to basically set down in drawings the images of places that they had travelled through, Richard Dow was recommended to him. And in 1842, they uh, set off together these two men, Thomas Phillips was the name of the lawyer, uh, with Richard Dadd, and they went on this incredible whistle-stop tour of the Eastern Mediterranean. And sadly, it was during this visit, towards the end, when the two men were on their return journey in, in Rome, that Dad first showed signs of serious mental illness. He also started to believe in a kind of conspiracy of those in power, whereby everything that was wrong in modern-day Italy was the fault of the state and the fault of the church, and that, you know, someone was doing something terrible to somebody else, and he, Dad, had to do something about it. He was placed in 1844 at Her Majesty's pleasure indefinitely as a criminal lunatic, and that meant that he was dispatched to Bethlehem Hospital in Lambeth, to a building that still survives, in fact, but now is the Imperial War Museum. And Dad remained a patient there from 1844 uh, for 20 years till 1864. When Dad arrived in 1844 as a patient, he was put under the care of one of the visiting physicians, uh, a man called Monroe. And that doctor really didn't uh, believe in curing mental illness. He believed in looking after uh, patients, being kind to them, being supportive of them, of their needs. But the idea that you could somehow apply a leech or offer them some kind of drug uh, was not part of the therapeutics of the period. Dad would have met Alexander Morrison straight away because Morrison was one of the two visiting physicians. But Morrison immediately was attracted to Dad because Morrison was of a certain age and background whereby he had the wealth and the interest to collect art. And also we know that Morrison was enormously interested in what he called the physiognomy of the insane, that is, studying the facial expressions of mental patients. Bethlehem, like all large asylums of this period, believed in something that was, to use a general expression, known as moral therapy. And moral therapy essentially had to do with the patient being encouraged to help him or herself by doing things which helped them regain self-respect. The doctors in charge of dad felt that, well, what could be better than to simply say to him, why not please paint me a picture? It seems to me that Morrison would surely have at least sought to talk to Dad about his art. And clearly the two men got on well because we know that Dad painted this wonderful uh, portrait of Morrison that is now in the collection of the National Galleries of Scotland, showing him uh, in the year of his retirement back at his home at Anchorfield, uh, not, far from, not far from Edinburgh. And there are tantalising but, but, but hard-to-confirm reports of Morrison buying, collecting watercolours by dad. Um, we can trace, we think, the provenance of a few of those, you know, that exist today. We can trace them back to Morrison's collection, but it's, that's kind of tentative work. Becky Howell is librarian at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery. 
we asked her to tell us about Dad's portrait of Morrison. The portrait is of Alexander Morrison, who was an alienist in the 19th century, which is a psychiatrist, is the word that we'd use these days. Alexander Morrison is at the front of the portrait. Uh, he's all dressed all in black with quite a sombre look on his face. And he, in his hand, he's extending out a top hat. Behind him is a New Haven scene. Alexander Morrison was from New Haven. And if you didn't recognise the landscape, we've got a couple of fishwives in the background there. So at the time, fishwives were the quintessential image of Scotland. So before the Highlands, before any stags came along, um, the fishwives were what people would think of when they thought of Scotland. This picture in particular is very reminiscent of um, Helen Adamson's portraits from New Haven of the fishwives there. So we're not quite sure whether Dad would have seen Helen Adamson's photographs. There's another portrait that he did of a collection of fishwives, which was actually taken from a jar of fish paste. So that might be the material he was working on rather than um, the photographs of Helen Adamson. This picture was painted the same year that Morrison left Bethlehem Hospital. There is definitely a melancholy quality to the picture. Um, despite the very vibrant colours, it's almost Van Gogh-esque uh, with its um, palette. But uh, Morrison's face is very, I don't want to say unflattering, but it definitely shows his age and it's not the most flattering facial expression that you would have in a portrait. Um, it's very solemn, his wrinkles are very obvious and I think there is a sadness um, in the figure despite perhaps the jauntiness of the fishwives and the fluffy clouds in the sky. He would buy portraits and other paintings by him. He had apparently a massive collection at his house in New Haven definitely a champion of dad's art and actually even after Morrison left Bethlehem Hospital he would write back to the institution and say oh here's some money can you send me some more of dad's pictures and eventually Bethlehem Hospital put an end to it because they were worried that the paintings would re-enter the market. So who was the eminent Victorian psychiatrist dad had depicted? And how did Morrison tread the line between patron, benefactor and mentor to the artist? Nick Tromans told us more. Morrison, being this rather older, grander physician used to working in private medicine, didn't frankly get along very well with these big public asylums. You know, his idea of an asylum was his own consulting room, one-on-one, -on -one. You know, you try and help your patient, human being to human being. The idea of herding, as he perhaps would have felt it, hundreds of people into a minimally staffed, drafty, great big building. You know, he was sceptical about that. Of course, money was of little use to Dad. Uh, but we do know from a note that Morrison makes in his diary that at one point, Morrison sends a very small amount of money to one of the nurses at Bethlehem so that the nurse can buy apples for dad. Fortunately, our understanding of psychiatric conditions has come a long way in the last century and a half, and the use of creative arts to aid the mind has become commonplace. We found out how creative work isn't just about healing illness, but can help many people stay well. 
My name's Steve Hollingsworth. I'm a visual artist. I've got a big sensor hit, so I use neon light, sound, performance, video. Artlink is an, it's an arts and disability charity that puts artists in the context of healthcare, I guess, in hospitals, in daycare centres, in different places where art would not necessarily be seen to exist. And when it's there, it it's almost uses a catalyst to, to drive ideas forward, to open up ideas. I was approached as an artist and asked to be part of something called sensory workshops, where I work with people with severe and multiple disability who can't communicate in traditional ways using language. So it's really about art becoming part of a relationship, using art as a means to connect with each other. We started to realise that experiences needed to be very much slowed down for people that we worked with. So we started to move towards using sound, like drones, and using our, our bodies in a way was the most immediate material to hand that we could change in order to create tangible experiences that people could follow. So we try and use art as a means to thicken time and to thick, almost thicken or congeal perceptions for people so that they understand what's going on. Because for a lot of disabled people, the world moves at a very rapid rate, so fast that they can't grasp hold of it. So we, we're using art to sustain moments using combinations of light, sound, ourselves moving very slowly perhaps or using our voices so there's almost an idea of reverse pedagogy learning from people learning about their experience of the world rather than imposing ourselves upon them thinking about how creativity can be part of everybody's life there and staff there have really taken on board what creativity can be Ben was somebody within the centre who was quite marginalised, I think. He wasn't quite getting the activities he needed, and I worked with him. I worked with a vision specialist called Dr Gordon Dutton, and Gordon worked out how Ben could see how he was seeing. And we came up with this thing called a sensorium, which allowed Ben, using a joystick, to have his own experiences, to move a joystick and be able to travel through space and, and change sound. And that gave him agency that he had not had for a very long time and it increased his confidence and he really loves it. I really resist the word therapy, even though, of course, the work's got therapeutic aspects. I think it's, it's really about the possibilities art has to change things. And I think with Ben, the work became a catalyst and it was like dropping a stone in a pond and the ripples move outwards. It, it changed Ben's, you know, we've all got a narrative identity. We've all got a story. Ben, ben was able to change his identity it really forced me to rethink what art's about. You know, is it an object in a gallery? Is it, um, is it a video? It's really about experiences which are, which are sustained in time for me. You know, children, that's the obvious example, isn't it? A creative, they're always drawing, playing. And I think play, as you get older, becomes, becomes less and less important. And I think creative play is massively important to keep things open. Rather than as you get older, you're kind of pruning synapses all the time and reducing your ability to experience the world. I think it's, art can be about being open all the time because art reflects the world back at us in unique ways. Henry Coombs is a filmmaker and artist who trained at Central School of St Martins and Glasgow School of Art. His interest in how the artist deals with the art world has led him to train as a therapist, specialising in creative blocks and the fulfilment of creative potential across the arts. Well, I believe there's a connection between creativity and mental health. I'm not just an artist filmmaker. What I teach, um, I've taught in prison, but I've, I've studied therapy and hypnotherapy. And it's had a, an impact on my work and my process and how I make uh, films and artwork. 
Um, interest in therapy began by going and getting therapy, really. Yeah, recovery from a obsessive compulsive disorder that I had, which uh, I had all all during the period of actually making the film Bedford this is in the National Gallery. So seeing all those obs- drawings was quite uh, a reminder for me because it was when I was in that mode or state, whatever, however you want to put it. Non-stop working is a way of, if you like, medicating that, I think. It's not something I do anymore. And I just did a course in counseling and and it and it sort of snowballed from there but there's a there's a group of impulsive artists that i feel that they could do say a, a portrait of their granny and it would still have their themes in the work i've always wondered if it's um, a mind that is is frozen on a significant thing from the past or a memory that keeps on coming up so actually, it's a restricted imagination that's a borehole into the subconscious, but on one point. It's got depth through its, its, its inflexibility. People will paint yet the same things or the same feeling and mood comes off a piece of work from the same artist. I've done um, group work and workshops where we use adapted therapeutic tools to help um, fluidity and creative process and I guess unlocking potential and viewing uh, creativity as something that should be for everybody and uh, myself and a colleague uh, adapted cognitive behavioral therapy tools in order to explore creative potential and I use them in script writing a lot as well so for example you might explore something from thoughts feelings and behavior and physical sensations so you're you're exploring things from a a multi-sensory point of view that slows you down and allows you to explore things in more depth and ways to find more balance uh within your kind of routine is is really important to me and it's been the major thing of change in my life it sounds a bit silly in terms of creatively but it includes sleep diet hours that you work and how you view uh you know you view your day you'd want the indiv- uh, the the person to have um agency in how they they sort out their own day and what suits them and it's it's discovery what, discovering what suits each person i would say it's integrative we don't just use cognitive behavioral therapy because in itself it's too rational i think what I've noticed, the way that I work, and this is not for everybody, um, and maybe there are some artists or creatives that are identify with it, but when you dive deep down into something that's got some emotional heat to it or memories that are significant, it can disturb things. And it's realizing that actually something like cognitive behavioral therapy allows you to out, you know, to recover from, recuperate from, from that and find balance so you can keep doing it. In, in therapy terms, you could you call it a meta position, so you can stand outside yourself and critically look at what you're doing. It's, I think it's a basic human right to be creative in whatever form that is, and that takes a lot of different forms, and it's not, not just painting. I mean, I'm talking about that because that's what's vital for me. Henry's approach to combining practical processes with creativity says a lot about the way in which we can engage with our environments to better interrogate our artistic interests in a healthy way. Richard Dadd's institutionalised life provided him with a structure that allowed him to continue to create great art in spite of the mental health challenges he faced. And it's great to see that creativity 
is being incorporated more widely into our understanding of mental wellness work too. Whether as therapy for mental illness or as a part of a healthy processing of human experience, we've looked at a few ways in which art and creativity more generally can be essential for the mind. Whilst our creativity can be a prism through which we explore our own individual experience and themes of interest, those themes can also speak to something universal in others, allowing us all to become connected across time and place. If this show has started a conversation for you, share it on your social media and subscribe. I'm Ewan Bremner, and thanks for listening to Reflections from the National Galleries of Scotland. Catch you next time.